Hello and welcome to Landings with a Flare, the podcast where we supplement and support flight training. This is Captain Teresa. This episode will be a pilot ground school lesson in the format of a guided discussion. This conversation was recorded on the audio platform called Clubhouse. You will likely hear some variation in audio quality as speakers tune in from around the world. Many of our ground school lessons include handouts, which you can find along with other resources in the podcast show notes. They are also on our website, landingswithaflare.com. We hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Welcome aboard. Welcome, everyone, as we speak about troubleshooting landings. Now, when I was learning how to land, I thought that there were probably at least 200 different ways to mess up a landing. It turns out that there are really only about six different categories. The good news is that if you learn the six basic errors, then you can start to recognize the problems as they are developing, and you can also know how you created the problem and how to fix it. So you can have floating, ballooning, bouncing, porpoising, flaring too high, and loss of directional control. Let's talk about the basic principle that applies to almost every landing error, and then we'll break them down one step at a time. If you have an error in landing, most of the errors that I listed, the corrective action is really the same, and we already spoke about it a bit. The first thing you do, or one thing that you might do, is keep the nose up. Remember how we talked about how the controls should be a one-way street. There is rarely any good reason to reverse the direction of the controls once you start pulling back for the flare, especially if you have a small, light airplane. If you start getting into a heavier twin-engine airplane, you might be able to cheat a little bit more even then, it's still a bad habit, and it can lead to dangerous things such as porpoising, which we will talk about later. If you do not have several hundred hours, don't give yourself permission to reverse the controls. It's just a bad idea. Uh, I really do recommend against it. So if the plane is starting maybe to climb out again, because you pulled too rapidly on the controls, you can stop pulling on the controls and give the plane a moment to lose energy before you start pulling again. But do not reverse the direction because you're going to probably be a half a step behind the plane, which is actually something called a pilot-induced oscillation, which means that you're adding too much to the plane because essentially your reflexes are going to be slower than you think. First of all, do not reverse the controls. You can stop pulling uh, for a moment and then keep pulling back again, but do not reverse the direction. Other things that you should do is hold the nose up, as we said, add power if necessary, and go around if necessary. When I say add power, 
in a small airplane, what I'm meaning is just maybe adding in 100 RPM, maybe a little bit more than that, just enough power as the nose is pitched up, the power can help slow the descent rate of the plane to the ground. So just enough power to slow your descent rate into the ground, and you can kind of control that descent very nicely, actually, if you know how to do just the right amount. And then, of course, go around if necessary. We talked about this before, but for those who weren't here earlier, a go-around is when the pilot adds power and climbs out again. We say a go-around is a rejected landing, but sometimes it's better to think of the landing as a rejected go-around because it's always good to be ready to go around. Next week, we will have a long section where we discuss go-arounds. Okay, so for most errors... You should keep the nose up, add power if necessary, go around if necessary. Let's talk specifically. Let's start with floating. We already talked about the main cause of just floating down the runway, which is a long landing. Who would like to say what that is? Omar. So Captain, floating happens due to one, one simple fact. If we have more energy than we need. So if our airspeed is more than usual, if we have more lift than we're supposed to have in that portion of the approach, the airplane will float. And also we can take also ground effect into uh, to consideration too. Oh, great, great points. Okay, so yes. So the cause of floating is excess airspeed. It's too much speed. As we said before, When you come in too fast, you have a long landing. When you come in slow, you have a short landing. And remember that kinetic energy is mass times velocity squared. Your velocity is squared, which means that your speed has a big effect on the amount of energy or the distance that it takes to land. So now, Omar, you mentioned a really good term, and I wish I'd put it in the handout, It's about ground effect. Can you explain, or would someone, who would like to explain what ground effect is for someone who's never heard it before? Yeah, Omar. Ground effect, simply what happens is when we get closer to the ground, our induced drag is reduced due to the factor that our wind vortices is hitting the ground and reflecting in a different way. So that causes some cushioning and like reduced drag we have the same amount of lift, yes, but with reducing induced drag, then we will have this floating sensation. And I think the formula for ground effect is one third of the wing or wingspan or one half or half the wingspan, correct me, uh, Captain Teresa, where we start getting the ground effect. Okay, yeah. So ground effect is reduced induced drag. It basically means you're most likely to notice it when you are coming in too quickly. As you get close to the ground, there will be a point where you really feel like you're starting to float more as you go down the runway. Now, it's a gradual transition, so it's not exactly at one point where it will start. The official government publications say that it begins within one wingspan of the ground. However, I do believe, Omar, that you are correct. It's most noticeable a third of the wingspan off the ground, if I'm remembering correctly. I'm actually a little bit rusty on that myself. If anyone has anything to add. 
Yeah, as a general rule of thumb, I use half span of the of the wing. I already heard about the one third as well, like Omar just said, and I, I won't challenge that. That may be that may be correct as well. But as a general rule of thumb, I, I'm expecting ground effect at half a span of my wing. Okay, Mo, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to say I'm agree with Enrique. It is. I think it is one half of the. Wing, the ground effect is coming. Okay, Omar, I think that answers our question. Let's say that it's probably most prominent or noticeable starting about a half a wingspan. And yeah, there are some things that I'm a little rusty on because it's been about five years since I was actively flight instructing. Okay, great. So that can contribute to the floating effect. And you might not notice ground effect a lot if the plane is coming in at a proper or a slow speed. But when the plane is coming in at a fast speed, it can feel like the floating just got even worse right as you hit that ground effect. And of course, what should you do if you are floating down the runway? What is the corrective action, Mo? Yeah, uh, always... The pilot should always aware of how long is the runway that he's landing or she's landing. Uh, ready to make the best decision. You have to know how much you flared, how much runway you left. So in that case, you can make the best decision. If you have enough runway, if it's a long runway, you can add a lot of power and settle the airplane again. But if you don't have enough uh, runway left, the best choice is just going around. Very, very well said. Know your runway length. And make sure that you have enough left. The FAA says that if you can't land in the first third, you should go around. If it's a really long runway, you're going to have to use your judgment. Maybe you could take it longer. But most places actually say if you can't land in the touchdown zone uh, or the initial part of the runway, you should go around. Okay, what else should you do if you are floating? So know your runway length and go around if necessary. Uh, should you just push the nose of the plane straight into the ground or force it down? Enrique. So yes, uh, when you are floating on, on the runway, one of the do not do is push your nose forward. I would hold my current attitude, maybe easing just a little bit, just slightly on the yoke. And pretty much is. You're starting another another round out to land your aircraft. And if you don't have enough runway, it's like we just said, go around. Be patient is really what you are saying. Uh, don't force the plane down. Hold it off. Be patient. And if it still won't land, then you have to do a go around. Welcome to the stage, Vladdy. Here's what I do. I'm floating, and I tell myself, don't land, don't land, don't land, keep it up. If I do something else, I'm going to either pancake down or I, I would have to go around. So I do something counterintuitive. I tell myself, don't force it down. Just don't land, don't land. Just keep it up as much as long as you can. And it usually kind of works out. I like how you said that. You have this mantra in your head, don't land, don't land, don't land. Mo, go ahead. Yeah, I want to know what do you think about this sentence, uh, Captain, and the other pilots. Like uh, the landing is kind of, especially for the small airplanes, is like a, s a slow flight. 
through the wrong way. Some people like get the yoke and get push it and pull it back all the way. That's not a flaring. It's the best to let the airplane just fly slow through the runway until it touched down. I agree. It is a type of slow flight. The plane is getting gradually slower and slower, and it's losing its energy as it goes. Absolutely. So we have covered floating, and now we're going to go on to the next error of landing, which is ballooning. By the way, for everyone who joined us recently, we are following an 11-page handout that you can get off of my Instagram profile. Okay, ballooning. Ballooning is when the plane is descending toward the ground and then the pilot begins the flare, the plane starts climbing up again, which is not what we want. We just want the flight path to go parallel to the ground and then gradually lower toward the ground as the pilot is raising the nose of the plane and dissipating out the energy. So my question to you is why did the plane rise back up in the air after the pilot started the flare? Yeah, Mo. Yeah, it could be because of the speed of the airplane. That's one of, that's one of the reasons. The ground effect too? Um, maybe. Eli, go ahead. Excessive back pressure. Yes, it, rapid back pressure. So the back pressure was too rapid. That is why the plane is rising up again. When the pilot pulls back too rapidly on the controls, that creates too much lift on the wings. And it's the lift that is primarily raising the plane up again off the ground. So if you are ballooning, the chances are that you pulled too rapidly. As we discussed before, it doesn't mean that you started pulling at the wrong time. Now, maybe you were pulling too rapidly because you started your flare too late. That could also be a problem. But ballooning has more to do with the speed at which you pulled back on the controls for one reason or another. And of course, that could be dangerous because the plane could, as it's kind of sitting up at a low speed too high off the ground, it could stall and you could have a really hard landing off of that. What is the corrective action? Yeah, the best uh, thing to do is add a little of power, not to get a stall. If you can settle the airplane again and you have enough runway and then try it again. Yes. Uh, so adding power is a good technique. I would say it's actually the basic corrective action that you need for a lot of errors. Keep the nose up, add power if necessary, go around if necessary. Uh, do not force the nose down. That's dangerous. You can lead to a porpoise. Do not reverse the direction of the controls, but keep the nose up and you're going to either fix it with the power by letting the plane lower and settle back or by adding power to go around. Or maybe you just had a tiny little balloon, so you might not need power. Eli, go ahead. I just got confused here, Captain. And my question is, uh, when the plane starts uh, what we call uh, ballooning, the nose of the plane is on a takeoff mode. I mean, the configuration is like it's on a takeoff mode because it starts like climbing. Giving power just aggravates the problem of climbing again than settling the plane down. How are we going to fix this one? 
Ah, but it's all about how much power. If you only add one or 200 RPM at the most, probably more like 100 RPM, then it's only enough power to let the plane lower more gradually. It arrests the sink rate of the plane. You're not adding a whole lot. You're just adding a tiny bit of power to let the plane slowly settle back into the ground. Did that help answer your question? Yeah, that's correct, Captain. But I want to know this power with a percentage. I mean, we don't exactly know how RPM works. We use just percentage of power. So is that 10 or 20 percent, the 100 RPM? Uh, Which airplane is that? The DF-40. Diamond. Well, talk to your flight instructor about it. That should be a very common technique that any flight instructor should be able to show you. You can kind of do it by feel. Just add just enough power to just let it gradually lower. I see a lot of microphone flashes. I'm going to go to Mo next, and then I saw others. Yeah, I just wanted to add, uh, tell Eli that uh, we shouldn't forget that the airplane is so close to the stalling speed. So adding a little power, first of all, helps not to stall on a high uh, altitude. Yeah, that is so true. That is a good point. Omar. Yeah, Captain. So just from my experience from flying the, the DA-40, I just got checked out in a DA-40NG. So I'm talking about the, the diesel engine, the FADIC engine. You want to add about 10% of power. So if you're at idle, add 10% to 15% of power, and you get a, get a feel for it too. You know, you get to hear the engine. You get to feel the power. That as uh, someone just mentioned, what happens is, so there's always this a trade of pitch for airspeed. So whenever you're ballooning, yes, you're climbing, but you're trading off your airspeed and you're already close to the stall speed. So like, that's very important that you have to know that, yes, you are climbing, but adding power will not actually help you out and climb. It will help stabilize your airspeed a little bit so you don't stall and decrease the descent rate. So as closer you get to the stall speed, as your rate of sinking is going to increase. So you also don't want to slam the plane down to the ground. Excellent. Thank you. I'm glad that we have really specific airplane knowledge. That is one of the beautiful things about this lesson. If it was just me teaching one-on-one with a student, I might not have all the answers, but I feel like we can kind of crowdsource some of the answers here on Clubhouse. That is going to wrap up ballooning. Again, keep the nose up, add power if necessary, go around if necessary. Now, let's talk about bouncing. Contrary to popular belief, the bounce is not primarily because of the rubber in the wheels or the springiness in the struts. A lot of people think the plane is bouncing like a ball, but Really, it's actually a type of a balloon. Bouncing is related to ballooning, which is why we talked about ballooning first. Typically, the way that bouncing occurs is that the back wheels of the plane hit the ground and then the tail sinks rapidly. When the tail sinks rapidly, that creates more lift on the wings. And it's the lift on the wings that is causing the plane to rise up again off the ground. So do you see how it's really related to ballooning where the pilot pulled back too quickly on the controls and created extra lift? 
bouncing is creating extra lift. It's just usually because of how the back wheels hit and then the tail kind of slammed down, creating that extra angle of attack on the wings. Now, maybe the tires and the struts have a little bit of impact on it, but that's basically what it is. What could cause someone to strike hard on their back wheels? Enrique? You stalled too high above the runway? Yes, that is a common one. I like to call it parking too high or flaring too high. And so that's a very common one. Also, sometimes it's because the pilot landed flat and just didn't flare enough or soon enough. Now the pilot strikes the back wheels of the plane hard on the ground. The tail sinks down and they bounce up. They are in the exact same position or relatively same as a plane would be in a balloon. So what is the corrective action, as we said before, in this type of situation when the plane finds itself at a slow, low airspeed too high above the runway? Eli? The common procedure as of every regular landings is the power. But why I wanted to answer this question is some of the times I didn't use the power while bouncing and I just used the back pressure. The back pressure needed to stabilize the landing will be higher, but it works. Both ways, I think it works, and you can explain me. I agree. You are correct. That is a good point. The first rule is keep the nose of the plane up, and you might not need power. You might be able to just pause a moment on the pitch of the plane, and then as the plane sinks, you might just be able to pitch up enough to arrest the sink rate just with the pitch. So that is correct. What we say is keep the nose up, add power if necessary, but only if necessary. You might not need it. You might be able to just correct with the pitch and then go around if necessary. If you can't seem to save the airplane for other reasons, go around. So keep the nose up, add power if necessary, go around if necessary. But you are correct. The power might not be necessary. You might just be able to pause your flare and then continue flaring to soften out the landing just with the pitch. Any other comments on bouncing before we move on to another error? Sometimes when my students would bounce down the runway, as a flight instructor, I would just kind of look at them and I would say in a serious tone, well, you did bounce, but at least you can log three landings. Porpoising is probably the most undignified landing error that a pilot can have. You will feel maybe a little kind of ridiculous as the plane is porpoising down the runway. It is named after those friendly sea creatures that we have, dolphins, porpoises, that kind of thing. And it has to do with the motion that a porpoise makes as it is diving into the water and then climbing out again and then diving back down again. So it's this up and down motion that can occur. And of course, dolphins are designed to do this. Airplanes are not. So uh, how does this happen in a small airplane? Usually, this is the result 
of the nose wheel contacting the runway before the main gear do in a tricycle gear airplane. When the nose wheel strikes the ground, then the back of the plane will sink rapidly and now the back wheels will hit the ground. This is related to the bounce because when the tail went down rapidly, that created a high pitch attitude and lift on the wings, and that raises the nose of the plane up off the ground. But now, this is where the pilot comes in, the pilot skill. If a pilot corrects properly for this type of bounce, then it's the end of the story. The plane is safe. But a porpoise will continue if a pilot does not correct properly. And what I mean is if the pilot pushes forward on the controls, then the porpoise will get worse. Because what's happening is the pilot is adding to what the plane is already doing. The nose wheel struck and that slammed the back wheels of the plane down onto the ground. It created lift and the plane rose up. If the pilot makes the mistake of pushing forward on the controls, right as the plane is already losing energy and getting ready to descend, then that doubles the force on the descent. And now the plane will come down again on the nose wheel and it will come down harder than the first time. And now you repeat the process. Now the back wheels strike the ground and now the plane will rise up usually even higher on the second one. And what we say in aviation is that the first two porpoises are free, but you will pay for the third one. Usually on the third one, sometimes on the fourth one, a pilot can total their airplane. I'm not joking. On a tricycle gear plane, they can come down and land so hard on the nose wheel that they jam the nose wheel up into the engine and the engine area. Uh, If we're talking about tailwheel airplanes, you can also have a lot of similar issues where they can actually just nose straight into the ground. They can even flip over upside down. So this is why for the last few hours, we have been saying do not push forward on the controls because that can lead to a porpoise. So who has comments to add about the porpoising at this time? Captain Shanita. I was going to say that I actually saw Porpoise firsthand. I was uh, number one holding short for the runway, and the instructor and the student came in fast. When they hit, they hit hard, and it bounced. Like you said, they bounced twice. On that third one, it was no more bounces. That nose uh, it ended up, the nose shrugged, went straight up into the engine, the propeller were, was bent, uh, both ends. And I, in my head, I was screaming, go around, go around. But there was no, no action was, was to be had, and airplane up being um total yeah if you see yourself in a situation you think you're not skilled enough to correct for it just just go around wow yeah that is a great story i actually believe that when i was instructing at this one air- airport for uh, about 10 years i think that that was probably our number one cause of totaling airplanes was the porpoise and i'm And the reason I'm saying that, normally there were contributing factors. Like, for example, on at least two situations, I believe a pilot was already landing with a tailwind, 
which led to a float down the runway because their ground speed was higher than they expected. And then the pilot did the wrong corrective action and pushed forward on the controls. And then they porpoised. And then the pilot didn't fix the porpoise on time. And then that led to the airplanes being totaled. I can think of a couple of really clear incidents that happened at our airport, just like what you said. The problem with a porpoise is when the pilot tries to move the controls back and forth to dampen out the oscillations. That's the wrong choice for the pilot. The right choice is for the pilot to just hold the nose up no matter what. Because the problem is, if the pilot is moving the controls back and forth rapidly, the pilot is always going to be a half a step behind the airplane. And so the pilot is adding to what's already happening in the plane. The pilot will not be dampening it out. It just doesn't, from personal anecdotal experience, it just does not work that way, even though the pilot thinks it will. Omar, do you have a comment? I have a question. Do you think, Captain, that that's because of the positive, positive dynamic and static stability of the plane? That the plane wants to correct itself, but we over-controlling and trying to fix is causing like a counter-correcting action? 100%. I'm glad you said that. Porpoising is a type of pilot-induced oscillation, a PIO. And we will be talking about this more in aerodynamics. But the basic principle is that most small airplanes have what we call positive longitudinal stability. What that means is if the plane is trimmed for straight and level flight, maybe it's in cruise, and the pilot pulls back on the controls and lets go, the plane will correct itself. And again, we can talk about all the reasons for why, which I would love to go into, but we don't have time right now. But the nose of the plane will lower itself, and it'll lower itself too much. It'll overextend. And so now the plane that was maybe it was climbing 700 feet a minute, now it might be in a descent at 700 feet a minute. But if the pilot just waits, then the nose of the plane will pick itself back up and start climbing. Now it might only be 500 feet a minute climb rate. And then eventually the nose will drop itself. It will correct itself without any input from the pilot, except maybe keeping the wings level using the rudders or something like that. The nose will drop itself and now it might be 300 feet a minute and then it'll rise up another 300 feet. Now it might just descend 100 feet a minute. And often those oscillations will dampen out. That is what you can expect in most Cessnas and Pipers. The diamonds will attempt to correct themselves, although the oscillations will not tend to dampen out. So we say that a diamond has positive uh, static stability, but neutral dynamic stability, whereas the others have positive dynamic stability. But I just got off track and on a tangent. But to answer what Omar was saying, that is exactly what's happening. The plane is trying to drop its nose all on its own. And so if the pilot pushes forward and adds to that, you the pilot just aggravated the situation. It's like zigging when you should zag, and, and that is the aggravation there. So what is the corrective action if the plane is porpoising? I will tell you what it is not. It is not moving the controls back and forth really rapidly. So what is the correct corrective action? Mo. The best action is add a lot of power 
let the airplane settle again and then try it again if you have enough runway. If you don't, you have it's the best choice to go around. Essentially, yes. Yeah. So keep the nose up. That's the number one rule. Add a little power if necessary, if you can't just arrest the sink rate with pitch, and then go around if necessary. If it sounds like I'm a broken record, and like I just said that on the last couple landing errors, it's because it is the same. It's the same corrective action over and over again. Keep the nose up, add power if necessary, go around if necessary. In a porpoise, resist the urge to move the controls back and forth. Just hold the nose up. Don't play the game of trying to outwit the airplane because it usually does not turn out very well. Okay, great. That covers porpoising. Now we are moving on to our second to last landing error, and that is flaring too high. And sometimes I like to call it parking too high. What happens is the plane basically stalls too high above the runway. It runs out of energy and then it often drops hard onto the runway. So what is probably the number one cause of flaring too high? Eli? I could say depth perception because this uh, used to be one of my problems. And we talk about that uh, like before 30 minutes, which is where our eyes are when we are about to flare. If our eyes are close to the ground, we feel like we are about to to to, to touch the ground. And when we flare, we are already high. So I could say our depth perception really matters on flaring high. Yes, 100%. Flaring too high is usually caused by improper eye placement. And usually... It is from looking too close. As we, as Eli was mentioning, and as we were mentioning earlier, if the eyes are looking too close, then the brain cannot process what is happening. And we already talked about how the plane, the pilot will feel like the ground is approaching too rapidly. For proper depth perception, the pilot must move their eyes out down the runway, usually around the time that they are beginning the flare. And they need to look far enough down the runway, usually to a part that looks less blurry than other parts, so that they can get a really good speed of processing for their brain to process what they are seeing. If a pilot is flaring too high, the first question to ask is, where were your eyes and where were you looking? And I will tell you, a pilot who has a really bad ingrained habit will have a hard time admitting that that is what the problem was because they are so used to it. It's really hard to admit that you were the one who was doing that. And it can be a hard habit to fix. So as I said before, a good flight instructor will tell their student from lesson one or two when to start moving their eyes because the eyes want to focus too close naturally. You have to force your eyes out. Enrique? I agree with Mo, but I would also like to add that sometimes the, the, the student is just afraid to get at the proper height close to the ground. So I, I, I'm talking that from, from my, just my personal experience. I, I was afraid to get really close to the ground in order to start my round out and my flare. So I tended for some time to do that a little bit higher. 
and that tended to make the, the lane a little bit harder than it was supposed to be. Sometimes bouncing, uh, although I never purposed my, my landings, but I, sometimes I had some, some bouncings. It's just a matter of the student doesn't trust the plane, it doesn't trust the technique to get a little bit closer on the right spot to start their flares above the runway. I agree. There can be other causes besides the improper eye placements. Sometimes it's just getting a feel for the landing when you're learning. And there are so many counterintuitive things in flying. Like, for example, I used to think that if I went slower, I would ha- I'd be safer on landing because I'd have more time to think. Well, going slow means that you are close to a stall, and that is usually not safer. And then, of course, there are pilots who might be doing a go-around, and the plane isn't climbing very rapidly, and so they think that if they keep pulling back on the controls, it will climb better, when it's actually the opposite. They need to pitch the nose forward and gain airspeed before they climb out. Or the other one that's counterintuitive that we talked about before, if a plane is landing too long on approach, some pilots will try to push the nose down and dive, and that is the exact opposite as well of what you should be doing. You should actually be slowing the plane down to a proper airspeed, uh, or maybe even a short field airspeed. Yeah, so thank you for bringing that up, Enrique. There can be other reasons. Okay, we talked about flaring too high and why you might do it, but how do you fix it, Enrique? Again, I would hold I would hold my my current attitude, my my nose up, in order to pretty much um, get get back on 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 the control of my descent rate. Excellent. So it's the same as everything. It's keep the nose up, never reverse the control direction. Add a little bit of power to soften it out if you can't just soften it out by pitching. And then go around if necessary. It's the same thing over and over. I mentioned all of the five landing errors that we spoke about up to this point really have the same corrective action. We are a little bit over time, but I did want to finish with the sixth and final landing error. And that is loss of directional control. So up to this point, the other five errors of landing all had the same or similar corrective action. So now we have loss of directional control. This one is a bit different because it's obviously dealing with the sideways motion of the airplane. What are some reasons that a plane might lose directional control on landing? Enrique? Uh, Not enough control on a crosswind landing. So you didn't maintain your center line. Yeah. Very true. And Omar? Uh, other than what Henrique said, uh, slowing down the aircraft need to add more crosswind correction in the aileron. The slower you get, the more you put the ailerons into the wind. So that also can lead to, on the rollout, to get thrown off the center line. Yeah, that's a great point. As the plane gets slower and slower and in the landing, after it touches down, the pilot needs more and more crosswind correction with the ailerons. So that can lead to loss of directional control. Like Enrique said, it could be a bad crosswind landing. Almost anything, any error of the pilot when they're not aligned properly with the runway 
And usually, or not usually, but one of the things that happens is the plane might be drifting slightly sideways when it strikes the ground. And then that can happen, that can lead to several different things. One of the things it can lead to is called ground looping, which is actually pivoting on one wheel. So what can happen, let's say that the plane is drifting sideways when it lands. Our tires are not meant on most airplanes to land sideways. That puts a lot of stress on that one wheel, and then the plane starts to pivot around that wheel. As the plane is pivoting on that wheel where there's more friction, sometimes it can swing the wing of the plane around, the outside wing, so quickly that that wing starts developing lift again. If if the plane was already landing at a fast speed, the plane had a certain amount of lift in it. And then if you swing that outer wing around, it can create so much lift that it can actually dig the lower wing, the other wing tip into the ground. Just by drifting sideways when you land, you can make the plane pivot. One wing can rise up and drive the other wing into the ground. That is a type of a ground loop. Tail dragger airplanes or tailwheel airplanes are known for ground looping also for other reasons because for them, it has to do with where their center of gravity is in relation to where their wheels are. So it's often quite common to see a tailwheel airplane basically rotating around one of its tires as well, which is also called ground looping. Another loss of directional control that you can have is when it's common to happen on a touch-and-go. In this scenario, what can happen is maybe the pilot landed a little bit too far to the left of the center line. Well, in a touch-and-go, they would normally do some necessary cleanup on the airplane. They might retract the flaps, maybe push in the carburetor, heat, or do whatever else they needed to do and then add power and do a takeoff without stopping. So a touch and go is when a pilot lands and takes off again without stopping. Well, maybe the pilot landed too far to the left, and then when they added power, they got a left turning tendency in the airplane, and that pulled them even farther to the left. What often happens is either the pilot will go off onto the left side of the runway, they'll go off the runway, Or maybe they'll try to correct it and then they'll reject the takeoff. They'll abort the takeoff, bring the throttle back, and then they'll go off the far end of the runway. Or maybe they'll even overcorrect and then go to the other side of the runway. So the long story short is especially when you are doing a touch and go, I recommend a very specific procedure. I recommend that after you land, you kind of pause in your head and verify that you have directional control. Then, once it's under control, do whatever cleanup or other settings you need with your flaps. Then, verify directional control again. Then, add power to continue the takeoff. I would actually have my students say that out loud when I was training them. They would land. They would say, verify directional control. They would set the flaps, they would say verify directional control again, and then they would add power. Those are a couple of ways that you can lose directional control. I do want to have one maybe comforting thought for students that might be, or pilots, that might be running off the side of the runway. 
a lot of pilots seem to think that that is a fate worse than death. They think it's that some people, I think they're imagining that the runway is like a cliff. And if they go off the side of the runway, they'll fall off the side of a cliff. That is not usually the case. Usually there is some nice grass off on the side of the runway or some nice dirt on the side of the runway. Airports are designed to actually have a relatively clear area around the runway just in case a pilot does run off the runway. And again, these are like your major airports, your well-designed airports. I can't speak for every little grass strip that is created, but in general, remember that a lot of airports are created with this thought in mind. If you are going off the side of the runway or the end of the runway, my advice is try to aim between the lights and the signs so you aren't as likely to hit things. But even if you do, a well-designed airport has everything designed to break away at a, a low point. It's called frangible. So the lights and the signs are frangible, which means they are designed to break before you have severe damage on your airplane in a perfect world. Don't test it out on purpose, but just know it's not the end of the world. If you go off the side of the runway, at least there's probably some type of grass or flat surface on most runways. I forgot to tell you my joke when we were talking about flaring too high. We can kind of close with that. Sometimes when my students would just flare too high, I would just look at them and I would say, well, either you flared a foot too high or the runway was just built a foot too low. And then they would say things like, yeah, and it's built crooked too. Sometimes it's built to the left and sometimes it's built to the right. So just remember, you can always blame it on the runway. This is Captain Teresa. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you were one of the people being recorded, I thank you. If you were one of the people that we edited out of this recording, I beg your forgiveness. There were many reasons that this episode may have been edited, including length, audio quality, and accuracy. We don't always have the right answers. I ask you to view this as entertainment and not as a replacement for formal instruction or advice. If you want to send constructive feedback, or if you have questions, feel free to contact us through our website, landingswithaflare.com. You can view announcements on our Instagram account, landingswithaflare. You can also join our live conversations on Clubhouse in the Club Pilot Flight Training. If you got value out of this podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a positive review. Wherever you are in the world, we wish you happy landings.